welcome back to another episode of Praxis Pedagogy Podcast, episode 43. That's right, 43. This is going to be a great one. I sit down with Josh Zolan. He is from Arizona. He's the CEO of Windy City Equipment Services. He's a businessman. He's a tradesperson. He comes from a family of tradespeople. In fact, his dad is a tradesperson and makes an interesting career change. You want to listen for this. Josh's background growing up is pretty fantastic, I think. And uh, you're going to love this episode. He provides a ton of insight into how he runs his company, how he trains his his people, how he motivates them, how he builds into them this sense of team and accomplishment, all with the mindset of helping them to grow. And I love one of the things that he says in his book, which is the reason why I had him on the podcast. He wrote this book called Blue is the New White. I'll leave a link in the show notes for you to go and check it out. You need to buy this book. It's designed to show people what entry into the trades really looks like. He breaks down a lot of barriers in this book. It's really fantastic. Easy read, straightforward, no fluff. He just cuts to the chase. And the subtitle of the book tells it all. The best path to success no one told you about until now. So again, here's Josh Zolan, episode 43. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll catch you on the other side. Yeah, I love it. All right, here we go. Three, two, one. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. I've got Josh Zolan with me this morning. Sally and Chad are on special assignment. So uh, it's just me and Josh this morning. And I've been looking forward to this, Josh, for a, for a while now. And um, not just because you're a tradesperson and we can talk forever on our connection that way. Uh, but you wrote a book called Blue is the New White. And the subtitle is The Best Path to Success No One Told You About Until Now. And first of all, I want to thank you for writing the book. It's, it's a great book. And I would recommend uh, everybody who listens to this episode buy the book. Uh, it's not just for tradespeople. And that's what I really liked about it. And um, uh, so, Josh, why don't you introduce yourself to to our listeners? Tell us a little bit about yourself and... Sure, absolutely. Well, first off, Tim, thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, it's an honor to be here, honor to talk to you. Um, big fan, and uh, and I'm just excited to be on the show. So, um, as for my background, uh, it's a little unconventional, as as you probably already know by reading the book. Uh, but uh, let's see. I'll start. I grew up in in Kenosha, Wisconsin, um, on a farm, as you would probably expect when I said Wisconsin, but. Uh, um, it wasn't a typical farm. It was actually converted into a stunt school. My entire family is in a stunt industry. Um, and yes, that, that is a film industry, stunt men, stunt women, uh, lighting themselves on fire, jumping off buildings, rolling cars, you know, all the typical stuff that uh, kids do when they grow up. Um, and so that's, that's what I spent my, my youth doing. I was very vocal at that time about not wanting to go to college basically exclaiming that I wasn't going to go to college, but it wasn't because I was getting into the trades. It was because I was moving out to Hollywood to be a stuntman. Um, that was a typical, you know, path that was kind of laid out for me. That's what I knew. And that's really all I knew. Uh, so I, I followed that path. I went out to California, did the stunt thing for a while. I've always had kind of an entrepreneurial spirit. And um, when you're in the stunt industry, <clears throat> a couple of things 
number one, it hurts. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, and, and, and it kind of comes with the territory and I, you know, I was watching my, my family walking around and, you know, my, my grandfather's broken uh, more bones than I can count. And, uh, my uncles are limping around and hurting their backs and their knees and stuff like that. And it's just, you know, that coupled with the fact that, uh, it's a very bureaucratic industry. Uh, if you ask me, some people out there are probably going to crucify me for that, but they know it. So it's just, uh, at the end of the day, I guess really what it boils down to is I wanted to be a business owner. That was my passion. And I was tired of, uh, being a, a rag doll for, for other people that were deemed more important than me as a stunt double. That's kind of the, the territory, right? So, uh, one day out of the blue, my lease was up. So I called up my dad who was living in Arizona at the time. And he had started his own, uh, restaurant equipment repair company called Windy City Equipment. It was just him uh, turning wrenches on the street and I uh, called him up. I said, dad, I, I've got no idea what you do, but I want to come work with you uh, with, with one condition that, uh, you know, we grow this business. And he was like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, okay. whatever. I'll, uh, <laughs> yeah, whatever. I'll, I'll teach you. I'll teach you how to turn a wrench if that's what you're asking. And so that's what I did. I moved out from California to Arizona, uh, worked alongside him and, He's a very old school guy. So, you know, although it was his company, his business, and it was only him, uh, there was no way that I was going to skate, you know, learning the trade. And it was very important to him. And at the time, you know, whether or not I realized that it was, it was very important to me as well, uh, really taught me the fundamentals of everything that I am today. Uh, and uh, the rest is kind of history. You know, I, I learned how to repair restaurant equipment. That's where I got my start. We ended up growing the business from just him and I to, let's see, today we have four branches in three states, um, you know, and, and we're, we're cranking away. We do more trades now than just restaurant equipment. We've expanded into HVAC, refrigeration, although that's not my expertise. You know, I have uh, several brilliant people on my staff that, uh, that head up that department. and. Um, Somewhere along the line, you know, in the growth of the business and the, and the company, you know, I, I kind of had this, this realization, right? This epiphany that, holy crap, like I didn't know <laughs> and, and nobody that I knew knew that, that this industry could be so lucrative. It's just, we were never taught, you know, and no one ever said to me in high school, hey, you know, if you want to repair restaurant equipment, you can make millions of dollars. You know, hey, if uh, if you want to be a plumber, you could have a very successful career and and travel pretty much anywhere you want to go and always have a job. This was never this was never brought up to me. This was never, you know, told to me. And uh, so um, last year, I published the book called uh, "Blue Is the New White," uh, meant to really open people's eyes. Uh, mainly, you know, it's geared towards like the high school demographic. You know, where I would have hoped to have learned about, you know, what it is that I talk about, um, you know, and, and it really just kind of pulls back the, uh, the veil of the skilled trades and lets people know what the industry is all about, you know, not just the money that can be made in the industry, but all the different benefits and opportunities um, that exist within this, this incredibly large, you know, uh, career path. So, um, and really that, uh, that brings us to where we are today. Nice. Nice. I really appreciate what you're saying about the, uh, not knowing a lot about the trade before you get into it. And, uh, 
kind of the same boat for me. I mean, my I grew up in a tradesperson's home. Like my dad was a power line technician, worked for you know our, our provincial power company, BC Hydro, and he had been that his whole life. In fact, he had, he had boasted that he had worked in all all the provinces across Canada except Quebec and a few of the maritime provinces. We even lived up north in the Northwest Territories for a couple of years. We were supposed to go to Libya. In fact, and then that's when Gaddafi took over the country, and my dad said, "Well, let's uh, let's just stay home for a while." <laughs> and uh, so, but even growing up in the in the in the home, my dad would always say, "Well, you know, you got to go get a trade. Go get a trade. Stop looking at this university stuff." And I thought, thought to myself, "Yeah, but I don't want to work with you, <laughs> right?" <laughs> and uh, and then you know, fast forward a whole bunch of years, I'm getting into the getting into skilled trades and. Here I am thinking, oh, I want to go be an electrician because that's kind of what my dad did. Um, but two-year wait list to get into to tech school. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to wait that long. Had a whole bunch of choices here and then kind of backed into being a plumber. Had no idea what plumbers really did other than, you know, fix toilets. And kind of like you, get, in, get into the industry, fast forward a couple of years, get into the industry. And I'm like, that's about 3% of my actual work that I do was, was around <laughs> toilets. In fact, I did a lot of commercial work and worked in a lot of hospitals, a lot of schools, worked on heating systems primarily. So everything from hot water to solar to, to hybrid systems and never would have thought that plumbing would have led me to, to that career. And then I taught for, well, I, I still am teaching for 11 and a half, 12 years, the trade and never would have thought that that trajectory was available. So and that comes out quite clearly in your book. I love it. So what's the, tell me more about your philosophy about refusing to stop learning. Cause I, that when I when I came across that, I'm like, ah, I got to ask you about that. <laughs> refusing to stop learning. I, I, I'm a big advocate for learning and education, you know, and, and it, some people, when I say that it, they think it's a little contradictory because they know my views on college you know, in university in, in Canada and stuff like that, you know, uh, and it's not that I have anything against education, right? I'm, I'm not anti-education. As I say in the book, I'm pro the right education for the right individual. And I think that success, at least success for me, hinges on one very important thing, and that's to refuse to stop learning. If, if, I, if I ever feel like I stop learning, I feel like I stop growing. And, um, and, you know, that's the one thing or one of the few things that I can control my entire life is, you know, myself and, and my abilities and my knowledge. And uh, so I'm, I'm a big advocate for that. And, and my dad, you know, he's always said, especially, I mean, since day one, I came into this company, he said, hey, son, you're going to learn something new every single day. And I was like, yeah, right. I mean, how, how, <laughs> how complicated is this? I'll go into a restaurant, I fix a fryer, I leave. But you know what? He was absolutely right. And, and even to this day, I'm not in the field anymore. You know, I'm, I've, I've taken the reins of the company and, and I focus more on the, the growth and the big pictures and the relationships. And it's just amazing what it evolved into. But it's because I refused to stop learning. I mean, yeah, the, the stuff that I was, I was learning, you know, 12 years ago is way different than the stuff that I was learning, that I'm learning today. But learning is the key. As long as you're, uh, you know, engaged and focused and uh, putting something new into your brain, uh, you can feel good about yourself when your head hits a pillow at night, you know? Yeah, for sure. For
For sure. Uh, that leads me into the next question of you, you said in your book, uh, never be afraid to think big. Now, I, know, knowing you from the book and, and, and kind of piecing some stuff together, that makes sense, right? I mean, nobody quits their job, moves across the country to start something brand new without this idea of thinking big. But tell us a little bit more about that phrase. Yeah. And, you know, we've got to be careful with this phrase. Because when I, when I say, don't be afraid to think big, I'm not saying don't, I mean, I'm not saying be reckless. You know what I'm saying? Um, there's a fine line there. And, and I like to draw the line between passion and practicality. You know, we've all heard the phrase that uh, uh, you, do some, you do what you love and you never work a day in your life. And uh, I, I believe that's in the book too. But, you know, thinking big is the ability to look past the, the practical things that you do. Like I, I didn't, I didn't necessarily love fixing fryers and ovens and, you know, things like that. And going into some of these restaurants, which I could tell you some stories, but you know, I, I want you to keep enjoying yourself when you go out to eat. Um, but, uh, you know, I didn't enjoy that kind of stuff, but you know what I did enjoy? I enjoyed the, the look that came over somebody's face when I was able to help them, continue to operate the organization, you know, and, and I didn't know necessarily when I started where I could take the company. All I knew is I had to have a direction and I had to have a big goal because, you know, it, it, I would rather, I would rather aim high and miss than aim low and hit. If that, if that makes sense, you know, and I've carried that philosophy through my entire life, not just within my business, but you know, in my personal life too. And I will tell you, you know, it's, it can be daunting at, at times because, you know, people see you sometimes as insatiable, which I would argue isn't a terrible thing, but it, it can be when you completely throw yourself into something and, you know, uh, put everything you have into shooting big, you know? So that's what I say. You can't be reckless. You have to draw the line, you know, but you can never, never aim too low. Yeah. Yeah. That's because people will call you driven. People will call you, um, you know, too focused. You're working too hard. You're working too much. Mm -hmm. Just slow down. They say, yeah, just slow down. Yeah. It's that uh, tall poppy syndrome, right? Where in that, in that one field of poppies, if one's getting too tall, they'll just, they'll cut it off. Right. And, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And, um, when, when you talk about teamwork in your book, cause this, this really resonates with me a lot because I'm, obviously coming from a trades background, I led lots of crews. I was working up to be the superintendent of our company and, and all that other stuff. And, and even when I got into education, realized that moving from the field to education was a career change, even though I'm bringing all of my, my subject matter expertise into education with me, still realized that teamwork was massively important. What do you do to build better crews, better teams? Mm-hmm. That is, uh, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Yeah, well, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's a really great question. Uh, I love that. And it, sometimes it can be difficult, you know, but the reality of the situation is that, you know, we're all here for a purpose. And I think it's important that we remind everybody of that. You know, some of the things that I do, I, I like to try to keep my crews small. So like a, a Navy SEAL approach, if you will, you know, um, six people to one leader. And, uh, and, you know, as the team grows, we, we branch off from that. And, you know, sometimes it varies five to seven, whatever through the growth. But I think that that's key in keeping people working in the same direction, you know, and, and it's the, 
cascading mindset of the entire team, right? Because we've got the we've got the leadership team at the top, and it's it, we all have to work as one. We all have to uh, work in unison and agree and decide how we we are going to lead our respective teams. And then that goes down to you know mid level management where then they all have to adopt that same mindset as well amongst one another so it can cascade through the entire organization. And that's the difficult part because you're talking about individuals. Every individual has their own characteristics, their own ideals, their own values, you know. And so I think it's, it's really about portraying that what you're doing or your company is its own entity with its own characteristics, its own set of values and our job every day when we walk through that door is to uphold that and move the company in the direction, in the, in the right direction. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So how do you deal with, uh, how do you, how do you feel, look at, deal with conflict? Well, each, you know, conflict, uh, it's gotta be circumstantial, you know, it, it, every, every situation's unique. Um, so it, it, each one calls for a different approach as to how to handle it. I think, uh, you know, the main thing is conflict can be healthy. And, and I like to, I like, <laughs> I encourage conflict. I encourage the right kind of conflict though. So, you know, what I like to, to try to focus on is, hey, look, if you've got a problem, you know, there's a way to bring it up. There's a way to handle it. And, you know, there's a way to work together to solve it. And, you know, I mean, we're still human, so emotions can get the best of us sometimes. But, uh, you know, as long as, again, going back to teamwork, making sure the entire team adopts that mindset, adopts those, those values for the organization, um, you know, we really encourage everyone if they have conflict, especially in these leadership meetings, right? I mean, that's where when you get to the top of a company, you know, you've got some brilliant minds up there all wanting to go the same direction, but sometimes disagreeing on how to get there. And so, you know, when, it, when conflict arises there behind that, that closed door in that meeting, you know, sometimes it, it just, we just say, Hey, gloves off. Nobody take anything personally, <laughs> but you got to understand everybody wants the same thing here. So how do we achieve that? State your case, you know, and let's discuss it, you know? So, so in a sense, I welcome the right kind of conflict, you know, the wrong kind of conflict is just again, it's, it's certain, it's circumstantial and, and conditional in a lot of ways, you know, so, um, it calls for, for different approaches. I can't nail it down to one way that I deal with it. Yeah, no, it's good. It's good. And it speaks to a deep level of trust. Like when you're, when you're telling your, your people, Hey, listen, gloves off, let's close the doors. Let's turn off the mics at, you know, turn off your phones. Let's, let's really get into this and, and get dirty. But when we're done, we're done. And we walk out the door unified, knowing that we're all moving in the same direction. It takes a deep level of trust for people to do that. Right. And to, yes, to, to share at that level and to even understand that when they <clears> walk out the door, that no one's going to stab them in the back later on what are some things that you've done to build that trust? Cause that's not easy to come to. No, it's, it's not easy to come to, you know, and, and it's not, it's not exactly fluid either because I think that that conflict encouraging that type of conflict actually builds trust. But again, you need trust in order to handle that conflict. So, um, you know, it, it's about 
having regular touch points. You know, I've got, I've got weekly meetings with my team, uh, my leadership team every single week starts at the same time, ends at the same time, no BS. I mean, we have our meeting structure, boom, 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 boom. It's this, this, and this, you know, so they have to first start by trusting me. And it's the, it's the tiny little things that you do, right? The, those micro messages. That meeting starts at 8 a.m. If not everybody in that room is in that room, that door closes. You can come into the meeting late as long as you sit down and you apologize to your team, you know, and, and it ends every, every time at 9.30 sharp, no matter where we are, you know, because that, that creates the structure needed, uh, you know, for, for the, the basic fundamental of trust. You know, they, they have to trust me first with that. I say, hey, I'm going to make you come to a meeting every week. Sometimes that's going to suck because we're all terribly busy. I understand that. But this is how, this is what I'm going to do. And then within that meeting, you know, it's, it's about that sharing. You know, we, we kind of preface those meetings with um, everybody goes around the, the room and shares a piece of uh, personal good news or professional good news. You know, and so it doesn't have to be business related, but we get a little glimpse into, uh, you know, what everybody is experiencing in, in their life. And that in itself helps to build, build the trust, right? Because, you know, we're kind of, we're letting people in. And so, you know, there's a level of vulnerability that you need to have in order to allow that trust to, to build, you know? And um, so that's, yeah, that, that's, that's what I say about that. Good. Good. I love it. In your, in your book, you talk about your approach to your business and it kind of ties in a little bit to what we were just talking about in regards to trust, because it sounds like, it sounds like it operates like a family, right? There's, there's going to be different levels of, of interaction but at the base of it all, everybody has to know that they've got each other's back and that they, they, they trust each other. You mentioned in the book that you, you approach your business with the mindset of helping 40 different families. Tell us a little bit more about that approach that you have. Yeah. So let me, let me start by saying that, you know, uh, I've talked to a lot of tradespeople all over the world. And oftentimes I ask what the re- most rewarding part of their, their career is. And I'd say probably about 90% of the time I get the same response. Well, it allows me to help people whether it's a technician in the field, whether it's a trainer, whether it's a business owner, you know, everybody is focused on, on their ability to help somebody else, which I think is just fantastic. It speaks volumes about the people in our industry. Um, and really, I mean, that's kind of where I get a lot of my satisfaction too. I, I remember when I was in the field and, and I, I touched on it earlier about, you know, seeing the look uh, come over somebody's face when I was able to help them get their operation up and running. And I, I realized through the growth of the company and bringing on employees and, and things like that, that I can do the same thing for just about everybody around me. You know, I, I've been blessed in this, in this fantastic position to not only help our customers, but to help our employees um, and our, our entire team. You know, and, and it knows no bounds really, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it, I, I help them improve as, as people, I help them improve as, as, uh, you know, in their, in their craft, I help them, you know, support their families. And, you know, the caveat to that is that I'm a big stickler for personal responsibility. 
So, you know, they have to be willing to help themselves. They have to be willing to help the company. But if they do, if they do those, those two things, man, you know, I'll take care of them and, and their family. And, you know, that's the way that I see it. You know, my wife hates arguing with me because she's like, I, I do so much for this family. And I say, well, I do so much for 45 families, mm. you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, uh, um, no, but it, it really is, you know, it's, it's so rewarding, uh, to be able to, to be able to do that. I mean, it can be a lot of pressure at times, you know, because I, I do view it that way. I don't, I don't see my people as numbers. I see them as, mm-hmm. as entire families. And, and, you know, part of my personal responsibility is to ensure that if they do what they're here to do, that I do what I promise to do. Yeah. That, and that's massive. Right. And, and I know a few contractors up here in, in, beautiful British Columbia who have the same mindset. Right. And it's, I even worked for, well, the, the guy I worked with, um, worked for my whole career didn't, didn't change anywhere. Didn't go any different, anywhere different. It was all very much centered around family and, and the value of, of the family unit and whatever that looked like for different people. But it, it was always, it was always impressive upon me that family came first. Right. And if you had an issue at home, it, you needed to take care of that. And cause work was always going to be there. And, uh, it, when I read that in your book, I thought, oh, okay, that's, that's going to, from my perspective, and I'm not a, I'm not one to look down the corridors of time and tell you what's going to happen. But man, when, when you touch somebody like a, like a tradesperson's core value of family like that, that, that just, you're already building tons of trust and, and loyalty that way. And, 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 you know, in reading the book and listening to you, I know that that's not a, it's not necessarily a motivational key that you're using to to get what you want, but you understand that that's a, that's a deep value. So when you touch that, you're going to create a lot of trust and and a lot of loyalty that way. I love that. You also talk in your book about, let's switch gears a little bit. And you talk in your book about four different types of trades candidates. And, and I found this to be intriguing. Um, Could you tell us a little bit more about that and which one best described you? The four different types. Yeah. Yeah. So if I remind me again, what, yeah, I'm just what, looking it up, brother. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you have people who want to go into the trades, uh, people who don't know what they, what they want to do. Uh, people who don't want to go to college, people who are looking for a career change. Th- those are the, uh, yes, yes, yes. I, I ask because sometimes I forget which ones I put in the book <laughs> because there's like a million and a half out there and oh, I yeah. have to choose four. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. So the, and yes, the, so, so the, the people that want to go into the trades, I didn't talk too much about, I think I maybe had one or two sentences on because, you know, the objective is the book uh, of the book is to, to, you know, get people to understand why they may want to get into the trades. So that one's pretty self-explanatory. I fell into the category of people who don't know about the trades and and who don't want to go to college. You know, those are the two categories that uh, that really fit me. I didn't know anything about the trades, you know, and and that was my biggest thing is that, you know, it's not like the trades were really talk talked down to uh, in my school in my high school or anything, but they just weren't mentioned. And I think that was the, the biggest thing, you know, no one was saying, you know, you, you should never be a plumber. You should never be an electrician. You should never be an HVAC tech. It just, it was, it was silent. It was ignored. You know what I mean? 
And, and that's huge. And, uh, I just, yeah, there's, there's so much to be said about that as to why, uh, you know, and it's funny too, because I, I took a, a career placement test and it, and it said that I should be a cab driver. And this is no joke either. Like people were laughing when they saw this in the book, yeah. but this is, this is real. And I think, uh, I think I still have that test like in my mom's basement somewhere, but I, I mean, even, even so like, I, I, I don't know. And then, you know, the people that don't want to go to college, that's a very, that's a very specific set of, uh, of students, you know, because I would argue that some want to go to college, but don't know why, you know, maybe it's because they were pushed that direction. Maybe, maybe it's because they think that's what they should do. Maybe, you know, whatever. And then there's some like me who, who kind of understood from a young age. Now it was because I was going to be a stuntman, but you know, it could be a million different reasons who understood at a young age that college isn't necessary for success. First, I need to find out what success actually looks like to me. And then, you know, I can move forward with it, but it's so expensive, you know, and that's the problem, right? Is that it's so expensive. So anybody who is even questioning you know, what, uh, uh, whether or not they should, they should continue their, their education in college, you know, I would really encourage them to do a lot more research on the trades. And, you know, I might catch flack for saying this, but I'm a big believer that if you know for a fact that you don't want to go to college, that you shouldn't go, you know, and it's just, I know so many people that were pushed into it that, that, you know, everybody said, well, just take the core classes, just you'll figure it out, you know, in, in, in college. And they never did, you know, and, and they, they've got 50, a hundred thousand dollars in, in student loan debt. And, and they, you know, they still have no idea what they want to do or they got a degree and they're not using it at all. You know, I just talked to somebody last week uh, on, on a podcast about how they, uh, they got a, a degree and, and never once used it. They graduated college and went off to be an HVAC tech, you know, it went, went, yeah. And it's just, so it's amazing to me, you know, and then the career change thing, you know, that's, that's a, tr that's a little bit tricky. Um, because just like any, any career, right. You're, whenever you, you, you enter into it, you're not going to be at the top of the pay scale. And so if you're looking for a career change at 35, you know, 40 years old, it, it's going to be a lot more challenging than if you're looking for a career change at say 20, you know, or, or 25, which can even be a, a little bit daunting for some people, but, but it's certainly possible, you know, and it, it's certainly doable. And, you know, if you're truly, and here's the measure, right? If, if you're looking for a career change, like an actual career change and you're considering the skilled trades, something is not working in your life. You know, you, you, you took a wrong turn somewhere, you know, maybe by the fault of, of your own, maybe not, but, but things didn't line up and something has to change. So, you know, the skilled trades, although it would be hard, it's not impossible, you know, and, and a lot of these, uh, uh, these trade schools, the courses are anywhere from, you know, six to 12 months. And, uh, and there are a lot of, uh, of adults in those classes as well. They offer, you know, night classes, you work around whatever job you currently have, you know, and, and you learn these fundamentals. Yeah. When you get into a company, you're still going to be, you know, uh, making entry level wages, which is still well above minimum wage, uh, most of the time, you know, so yeah, it could be a struggle, but what people need to understand is it's all on them. You know, I go back to 
uh, I go back to my love for, for learning. You know, it, it wasn't because I was my dad's son that I advanced in this trade and this industry so quickly. It's because I took it upon myself to do the work necessary to advance as fast as I could. You know, after, after working a 13-hour day, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go home and plop on the couch and turn on the TV. I actually brought all of the bad parts that I had replaced in all of these units in these restaurants, right? I brought all the, the bad, my wife loved this, by the way. Um, I, I'd, bring, I'd bring them home. I'd spread them all out on the living room floor on a towel. And I would take each one of those parts apart to understand how the individual piece worked. And then I'd see if I could put it back together, you know, and, but if you're willing to put in the time, if you're willing to put in the work, then, you know, it, it, you can absolutely advance. I would argue faster in this industry, in this career than whatever career you're changing from. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a very, it's a very important point. And, And when I was teaching in the apprenticeship in the classrooms, I would, I would often say something quite similar to that in the sense that, Trades always needs worker bees, right? If I need if I need worker bees, got to get job done. Great, and people just want to come, clock in, clock out, go home. Cool, you can do that, make a pretty good wage, no harm done, right? As long as you're giving me a good day's work and your attitude's pretty good, I, I can deal with that. Um, but there's all these opportunities out there too for people who want to expand and grow. And and some guys I know have gone on to get multiple tickets. Uh, and, and have advanced and some have gone and opened up their own company and, and this, this spectrum is huge, right? I'm, I'm wondering about the career change piece that you, you, you talked about. Um, do you find many people coming to you in your, in the mid thirties and early forties who've just said, you know, I've had enough of this kind of life and I want to get into this kind of life? Some, I find more people saying, I wish I would have done this. I wish I would have, I would, I wish I would have gone down that path. And when I say you still can, it's more of an an aversion. Yeah, no, I I can't, you know what I mean? And, and so, you know, that tells me that, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there that feel like maybe they've, they've, you know, kind of carved their own stone, you know what I mean? And, and they, 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 they picked what they did. And this is, this is life. Um, I don't, I don't think that way. I, I would encourage everybody listening not to think that way. Look, you, you can decide what direction you want to go, uh, no matter who you are, uh, no matter what you do. And you know, the only variable is how hard is it going to be? And then, you know, it, it becomes a decision at that point as to whether or not, you got the balls to do it. I mean, I don't know how else to, to, to say it. I, I'm not trying to sound insensitive, you know, at, at all. I'm just, it's, it's the reality. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and like anything, right. We see the shiny things of, of a certain lifestyle or a certain career path and go, Oh, I really want to do that. I want to, I want to be that. But then you forget that somebody spent four years of their life, you know, head down, you know, <laughs> And, and just getting really dirty and mucky and, and all that. And trades are dirty. Trades are hard. It's a, it's a physical life for the most part. Um, and you have to be aware of that before you get into it, obviously. Right. And, uh, yeah, like me, when I got into plumbing, it was like, okay, I, I didn't understand how, how physical the trade really was going to be. Uh, and I got into it a little late. Like I got into it in my late twenties and it was a career change for me. 
um, glad I did it and it provided for my family and, and is a great foundation. But, uh, there were times I come home, Josh, I'm like, what the snap am I doing? <laughs> right? Um, and, it, and you're right. When you talk about that, that pay scale grade, like, um, started out, I took a pay cut to get into the trade. Yeah. Right. And, but the good thing for us is that, um, we, there's quite a delineation between union and non-union sector up here. And I was part of the union sector. And so the, the saving grace for me was that I knew that every six months I was getting a pay raise. So I would carry that little slip of paper in my back pocket going, okay, in a few months, I'm going to bump up to this. And then a few months, <laughs> in six months, I would bump up to this. And, um, tell us a little bit about the trades school and trades technical training, uh, in Arizona, cause I'm sure it's different than what it is up here in BC. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple of, uh, trade schools here. Uh, the more known ones are RSI, uh, it's refrigeration uh, school Institute or I believe. Um, and then there's EVIT, which, which offers, uh, um, like high school level courses and things like that about the trades. Uh, and they're, they're, they're very good. You know, I've had the opportunity to speak with, uh, people at both, uh, um, at both trade schools. And, you know, I think the biggest thing about, about trade school and, and, you know, if people just need to, to have a realistic approach, you know, we talk a lot and it's all over social media now, you know, and, uh, about how lucrative the trades can be. Right. But, but going back, you know, and I know the instructors in these schools and when they're going out and they're doing recruiting and stuff like that, they're, they're talking about the wages and things like that, that can be, um, made and achieved in the, in the skilled trades as well. And they're not wrong, you know, but, I don't want anyone going to trade school under the impression that once they graduate after 10 months, they're going to be making $35, $45 an hour. That's, that's not how it works. It's still an entry-level position. Yes, you have a base knowledge and fundamentals. I wish I had gone to trade school. I think that that would have helped my fundamental knowledge. I was, uh, you know, I was, uh, uh, OTJ the entire time. And, um, but, uh, uh, but you just, it needs to be realistic. You know, I often recruit from the trade schools, but every single technician, in, at least for my organization that I bring in starts off as a preventative maintenance technician, you know, because there are fundamentals that now you need to learn on the job that you couldn't learn in the classroom, you know, and not to the fault of any of the teachers. They just, it's just not physically possible to learn in the classroom, you know, um, so, you know, I think that's, and, and they do a pretty good job of that. You know, I've had, I've had some, some people uh, reach out to me like on social media and stuff like that and ask about positions and what starting wages are and, you know, and some of them have expected like $25, $26 right out the gate, you know? And I said, I, look, I, I admire your, 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 your courage there, but uh, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You got, you got to prove yourself and that's just, that's just the way that I run my organization. Yeah, no, it makes total sense, right? I mean, because it's a, it, for lack of a better term, it's an experience and knowledge-based industry too, yeah. right? And, 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 you know, I hate to say it this way, but to, to a large degree, you get paid for what you're worth. And and you, you get paid for what you can produce in that way, no different than, you know, a white collar or a different kind of industry. Um, but as you gain skill and knowledge, and you mentioned this in your book that as you gain skill and knowledge and expertise, then you can start looking for a higher pay scale. 
Mm-hmm. And in some cases, you'll you'll see that happening uh, as a as a direct result of your growth within a certain industry, right? Yeah, yeah. T- tell me a little bit more about um, your thoughts regarding the current state of education and tech education. Um, what do you think could be done better? Like, I know that you don't want to say anything disparaging, but um, <laughs> this is, oh, a I don't care about that. <laughs> okay. This is a podcast about uh, pedagogy and, and, and education. And, and uh, I am interested to know, cause I, it, it came out a little bit in your book, but I want to tease that out a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I think the biggest thing is that, you know, first off, it needs to be talked about, uh, you know, and I, I, I I'm just going to go ahead and say it, you know, it, it is not talked about enough in schools across at least the United States. And, and I know that it's an issue in Canada as well. I've, I've done a lot of podcasts with, uh, with people in Canada and different provinces and, and everything. And, you know, I, I'll have to say that Canada is doing a fantastic job from my perspective, making this type of push. And I wish the same push would be made, uh, in the U S and I don't know exactly what it is, um, I think it's just, I think it's a combination of things. I think it's a, a, a misperception, as I say, oftentimes in my book that, uh, you know, the skilled trades just are a low level menial job and they've always been kind of viewed as not always, but, you know, since college really made a, a, a huge push, uh, they've been viewed as, you know, second rate. If you, if you can't cut it, in, in school and you can't go to college, then, oh, okay, why don't you go ahead and be a tradesperson? You know, and that's, that's what it was back in, in, in the day too, like, uh, in the industrial arts, you know, in, uh, in high school, who, who was in that class? It was the rejects and the losers. And, you know, uh, it, it was, there's always been this stigma around it that, trades people aren't smart and that created an aversion to the entire industry, you know? So on the topic of education, you know, the first thing we need to do is turn that around and tell people, Hey, you know what? You have to be really smart to be in the trades. There's, there's no, there's no way around it. You know, the trades are, are smart. And then the second thing is, you know, the marketing in, in the actual industry itself you know, which trickles into the education, right? We need people to educate before we can actually educate them. Um, I think the marketing, you know, in our industry needs to change. It's not always, I mean, yeah, there are, there are trades jobs that are dirty and nasty and hard and, you know, digging ditches and, and, and working, you know, really, really hard, which if hard work is a version for, for, for anybody, then you got other problems, you know, (laughs) you're going to work hard no matter what you do, if you want to succeed at anything. Um, you know, but, but really the other aspects of the trades need to be highlighted. It needs to become that sexy industry, you know, that up there with, I don't know, Instagram influencer and, you know, video game tester, you know, uh, but it can be done because, this generation and the next generation of people out there are so focused on community and helping people and changing the fucking world. And, you know, and that's, and that is, that's what I, that's what I say. I mean, that's kind of become my, my, my stickler is if you want to change the world, why not be part of the industry that literally manufactures it? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, that, that's what I say. So, 
you know, a marketing issue. Definitely the trades need to be regarded, you know, at least on the same tier as any other career out there, even, even doctors and lawyers. And somebody said it to me best on the last podcast uh, that I was on. They said, uh, you know, without tradespeople, there would be no universities. So, you know, if that puts things into perspective for anybody out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that, that building that you're in, somebody had to build that. The, That's uh, right. the, the heating and cooling system, somebody had to put that together. Now, of course there's engineers and there's architects and all that other stuff, but just just a part of the team, brother, right? And uh, you know that 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 funny white thing that's on the floor that you you do stuff on. <laughs> Somebody had to put that in. That's right. And uh, the the water, right? I mean, as a as a plumber, I take a lot of pride in the fact that we deliver potable water. That we yeah we we deliver safe drinking water and we protect it. We don't just deliver it; we protect it. And then yeah. we take away your waste, right? Massively important. Taking a lot for granted, and I agree with you. Trades is not a consolation prize. That's that's my statement. It's it's not a consolation prize. And uh, um, when I graduated, when the dinosaurs were still walking the earth, um, <laughs> trades trades in high school was were, they were down in the basement, right? Yeah. And whereas the STEM courses were up on the third floor, and so there was a physical separation between the two. And the mantra was: if you weren't good at math and science, go into trades. Well you soon figure out that 80% of what you do in trades is math and science related. And so now you got all these people migrating. Imagine that. <laughs> exactly. Especially in HVAC and refrigeration, right? Yeah. Like there's a, there's a ton in, elect, in electrical, there's a ton of math and, and, and yeah. pretty high level math too. How hard would it be to integrate the theory of refrigeration into a basic physics course, a basic oh. science class? I mean, Dude. what kind of dividends would that pay and, and it would cost no extra? Yeah. I didn't, I didn't learn anything about thermodynamics when I was in high school, but I learned a lot of thermodynamics when I was out in the trades world, looking at, at hydronic heating systems. Right. And I just, I just had to know basics of heat transfer. I had to know the basics of hydraulics, right? It's just, it's just part of what I did. Oh, now I'm getting fired up. It's good. Get the coffee in. <laughs> Let's Talk, go. Let's go. <laughs> Buckle up, baby. Let's go. Um, yeah. So I, yeah, a lot of that so resonates, right? And um, I think I think you're doing a good job in in reaching out to to making sure that people understand this, not just through the book, but through your podcast. And it sounds like when you're meeting with other people, it's it's elevating the perspective of the trade, right? And I was talking to an educator one day, and he works in a high school, and he does this kind of this hybrid program where kids come in and and they do a program, and it, it can apply to apprenticeship, and it's an elective. And so the enrollment means a lot because if he has a low enrollment, doesn't get funding for the course and pretty soon he could be out of a job. So he changed one of the, one of the words in the title of the course. He, and he, I can't remember what he exchanged it for, but he used the word engineer and no kidding within a week and a half, the class sold out (laughs) just by changing one word to engineer. Wow. And that, that to me really spelled the, the whole crux of this knowledge issue is like the apathy gap, right? Yeah. People don't know what they don't know. And like you, I've had lots of conversations with people and, and invariably it gets to the wage, but I go, you know what? It's much more than just the wage. It's a lifestyle, right? When, when you can drive by a building and go, Mm -hmm. I built that, right? And know that that building's going to outlive you, right? You're building these large artifacts that, that will be there for, the test of time. 
and most likely will be there beyond your time on this planet. That that's pretty humbling and and it's a strong statement. You know, it it really it really is because you're absolutely right. An author will say the same thing about their book. You know, it's 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 an artifact. Tradespeople will say the same thing about the work that they do. Or in my case, when I drive down the street, I say, don't eat there. Don't eat there. It's okay to eat there. Don't eat there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thankfully, I didn't spend a lot of time in, in restaurants. So, but uh, I could totally get that. There's a, there's a few buildings I won't go into and I won't go into that. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. But I know there's a few buildings that I will not go into just because I know how they were built. But um, anyway, um, who, who, are your, who are your favorite mentors? Uh, past and present, who who made the biggest impact on your life? And I kind of already know what one of your answers will be, but yeah, you, you do. Yeah, my <laughs> my dad is definitely uh, he's the biggest mentor I have. You know, it's the relationship that I have with my dad is 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 really great. You know, him and my mom split when I was very young, so growing up, I only was able to see him every other weekend. You know, back when he still lived in Chicago and I lived in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and um. So I didn't get to spend a whole lot of time with my dad, you know, in, uh, in, in those years. And I think that actually strengthened our relationship because then once I, you know, we both moved through life and he moved out to Arizona and then I moved out with him, you know, it was almost like this, Hey, we missed so much time before and now we get to work together. So, you know, and he's, he's said it a million times too. You know, we compliment each other very, very well. He's, he's a mechanic. You know, he's, he's not a, he's not a businessman. He's, he's a mechanic. And, and, uh, you know, I was able to compliment that. Not that I would call myself a businessman necessarily either, but, you know, I was the constant reader, <laughs> you know, I would, I would read, I would talk to everybody that I could and, and, you know, just learn everything that I could and, and got to the point where I had to do that about business too. So, you know, but my dad is really famous for these, these like one-liners you know, that just resonate through everything. And I, I, I'm able to use those in, in, you know, my business acumen as well, which is fantastic. Um, but, you know, he's definitely been, you know, a, a huge mentor of mine. Uh, I had another guy um, come into Windy City, into the company, and he worked with us for a little while. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a funny story. He was actually, we had a uh, company in California contracted us to do some work for some grocery stores out here and they were going to hire him and, uh, and basically fire us, you know, just so they could, they could pay less. And, uh, and so I hired him first. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, so Eat they, <laughs> yeah, so we renegotiated our rates because of course they were going to find out that I hired him. So uh, we renegotiated our rates, you know, I came down a little bit, but we didn't get fired. We kept doing the work. And, uh, and so he became a part of the team. He was an older guy. He was already retired. His name is Jim. And, you know, once that contract did eventually end, we kept him on in any capacity we could, cause he acted a lot like a consultant. He'd, he'd been in the industry for 45 years, you know, food equipment service industry for 45 years. And, uh, he's owned businesses. He he's worked for gigantic companies. He's worked for small companies. So he had a lot of insight. And I will tell you, that he was, you know, and my, my dad and I get along really, really great. Um, you know, but, and, and we, we try not to piss each other off too much. You know, Jim never held back his, it seemed like his goal was to piss me off sometimes, but that is something that my personality 
needs. I need to be challenged. I, I have to be challenged. And so when, when I come across somebody who's willing to challenge me, willing to create that conflict, you know, and, and I mean, I can almost feel the growth, you know, when, when Jim and I were going back and forth on, on topics. And I mean, sometimes it would get pretty heated, you know, but he would, and, and I can be hard headed too. So, you know, when people, sometimes when people challenge me, you know, I'm like, I'm like, no. And then they say, okay, well, I'm the CEO. What are they going to do? Argue with me? Even, I can say a million times that I encourage it. I welcome it. But there are only, I mean, I can count on one hand the, the, the number of people that will actually challenge me. When I say no, they say yes. And I say, well, no, I said no. They say yes. You know, and, and then it turns into, hey, you know, all right, let's rethink this. Let's hash this out. Let's move through this. Why are you so adamant? And, and it helps me grow. So Jim was, was definitely uh, pivotal in that. And, you know, those were, those were the two, you know, real, real big influences that I've had in, in the latter part of my career. I've taken, uh, I've taken a lot away from, you know, um, people I read about, you know, I, I mean, I've got, I've got idols, not, not necessarily mentors, but, you know, people I, I, I idolize, you know, um, some living, some dead, you know, but, uh, I mean, uh, I admire Walter Payton, you know, for the things that he did with the Chicago bears. And I'm a huge Chicago bears fan. So, you know, oh, that, okay. that goes, that goes hand in hand. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, and, and I mean, I, I, any real stoic philosopher, I love, I love philosophy. I love stoicism, you know, uh, and, and I derive a lot of who I am today from, from, you know, the old philosophers, you know, Seneca and, uh, Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius and, you know, those guys. So not so much mentors, but definitely, uh, worth mentioning. I think. I call them mentors from afar, right? There you go. Mentors. From I like afar. that better. <laughs> and, uh, Nice to know that I was wondering about the Windy City part because, you know, Arizona, not really known for a Windy City, but that seems yeah. like more like a Chicago thing to me and, and now makes sense. But uh, I'm a Packers fan, have been for a long time. And, really? Uh, yeah. You could have mentioned that before I agreed to do this show. Well, there's reasons why we don't say certain things <laughs> right, until we're deep into it. But uh, I mean, hey, look, Chicago in their heyday with Peyton and, and, and the fridge and all that. Dude. Oh, yeah. They were, they were, and their defense at that, just unstoppable. Right. But I, I know I, I, I became a Packers fan when Reggie White moved over from Philadelphia and, uh, oh, is I, that right? I just couldn't cheer for Philadelphia. I still can't cheer for Philadelphia. Just, I don't know. Can't do it. But, um, <laughs> NFC North is going to be, uh, it's going to be an interesting uh, year for NFC North. We're way I off track so. now, everybody, but that's, <laughs> I know everyone's like, what is this podcast? Yeah, what's going on now? But, uh, <laughs> those Minnesota Vikings that I'm, I'm really glad that they're tanking this year. But, uh, oh yeah. Well, that's what happens when your high school mascot is a hug. That's right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Very good. Oh man. So, um, so Josh, what have you changed your mind on recently? Oh, geez. That's a, that's a good question. <laughs> Switching you know, gears pretty hard oh, on that Oh my one. goodness. What have I changed my mind on recently? We've got, so we, we run a very, very tight ship here, right? And we're, we're very good at what we do. I mean, we focus intensely on quality and sometimes that reflects in our price. You know, uh, we're not the cheapest company out there, but boy, I'll tell you, we become the cheapest company when we can get it done right the first time and never have to come back. 
And that's what, that's really a really hard sell for some people, um, you know, because, because of our rates and stuff like that. But anyway, with it comes a level of, um, you know, communication and we have to, we have to, our quality of work is one thing, but our quality of, you know, taking care of the customer and everything else is another. So, you know, recently there was, uh, there was an instance where, um, you know, we, we, some, some customers are just very, very hard to please, no matter how good you are, no matter what you do, you know, and we happen to have a, a high profile customer, you know, and it just seemed like we couldn't do anything right. It seemed like we were always apologizing. Right. And, and big thing for me, take care of the customer. You know, I want to say customers always right, you know, but, uh, um, it, it almost felt like we were getting to the point where we are apologizing for things that we knew that weren't our fault. And so I had to change my mind and say, okay, look, I get, I, I get it. We want to do anything and everything we can to help this customer. We don't want to push back. We, we want this relationship. We love them, you know, and it's fantastic. But if we apologize too much for the wrong things, it's going to create a different reputation for us in their eyes. We have to draw the line and let them know why we are the best at what we do. And so I kind of flip-flopped on that a little bit, you know, and went from, okay, always, always say you're sorry and, 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 you know, do anything you can to, you know, apologize, but explain yourself, you know, and if that makes sense. Yep. Totally makes sense. Totally makes sense. Um, what do you, what do you do to grow professionally or personally? What, how have you cultivated your mindset? Reading is one. Uh, love to read. Uh, I'm always, always reading a book. Um, very, very interested in, uh, I, I like spiritual things. I like, uh, philosophical things, business things, and I'm always reading something. Uh, so personally, that's, that's what I do professionally. I find any, and any and all avenues I can to grow uh, professionally. Recently, I just joined a, uh, uh, CEO group called Vistage. And, uh, it's, it's remarkable. It's awesome. They have all these different chapters and, you know, all, I think it's worldwide. Uh, They've got them all over the world. And basically it's a group of anywhere from six to 12 people who are business owners and CEOs, you know, big and small companies. And they get together, um, a couple of times a month or once a month for a big meeting. And then, uh, you know, the, the chair of each group has a, a, uh, one-on-one, you know, um, meeting and stuff like that, but you get to collaborate with other minds. Look, I know that a lot of the business owners out there, this may resonate with, but, uh, there's not a whole lot of people we can talk to about, about what we do. You know, I, I, I love my wife to death. Um, you know, but she doesn't want to hear half the shit I have to say, you know, when it comes to running a business and, and the type of stresses that I have. And, not only that, but I don't want to burden her with that because she just won't understand. She's the best person I know, but I can't expect her to understand. And the same thing with, you know, friends of mine and, and even colleagues, there's really very few people that will understand what it is that we do. Um, so that's why it's good to surround yourself with other people in the same position. And then that really helps being able to communicate that kind of stuff really helps you grow because now you can talk transparently about solutions with people who have been there or who are there, 
you know, and, uh, and that is, that's been phenomenal for professional growth. Yeah. That, and that's, that's important, right? And, and I have to find too, that, um, when I'm with my peers in my, in my circles of education and we start griping, <laughs> right. <clears throat> it's a good place to do that. Cause they, everybody can relate. But it, like you said, it's, it's another good place too, because sometimes you get kicked in the butt and they go, Hey, listen, yeah. you signed up for this, right? This, this is not a surprise that suck it up sunshine. Right. And yeah, you know, it, just when you think you've got it bad, somebody else shares a story and you're like, okay, I, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. I'm good now. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. right. Perspective. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Very cool. Josh, it's been a it's been a pleasure to spend this time with you. Thank you so much for being on the show. We love it, and um, uh, just every every minute of this show has been fantastic. I just want to end with the Fab Five and uh, <laughs> just kind of rapid fire questions, and uh, and we'll end it off that way. Are you ready? Absolutely. No. Good. Then I'll talk to you. Here are the rules. First, I ask a question. Then you ask a question. Okay. What's your question? Favorite movie. Con Air. Oh, Con Air. I love that movie. Whoa, I don't know what it, Nicolas I Cage, it. man. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> that's good. I like Con Air. Oh, that's a good one. Got me all excited now. Favorite food? <laughs> uh, sushi. Sushi. Nice work. Favorite band? Tom Petty. Tom Petty. Look at you. That's awesome. Favorite tech? Favorite tech that you're using right now? Uh, XOI. What's that? What's that? XOI is a technology that we adopted here at uh, my company that um, allows the technicians in the field to take video and uh, audio of all the service calls and quotes that they do. And then it converts it into a link that can be shared across uh, any and all organizations. No way. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's really, really, really helpful. Oh, I wish I had another hour. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Last one. Favorite teacher. Favorite teacher. Oh God, all my other teachers are going to get pissed at me. Um, <laughs> I, you know what? No, I, I got to go with my dad. Yeah, that's what I my thought. Dad, my dad's my teacher and, and you know, he's, he's been phenomenal throughout my life. Yeah, that's good. Well, I, I take my hat off to your dad too, because not, not every father son combo works out well. And um, I, I, I know statistically speaking that second generation uh, business owners, they have a harder time making it work and making it successful and uh, just doing some back reading and research on what you guys have been doing. It sounds like you've got it dialed in and, and you're, and you're, you're looking at pushing that, that dial even further. So congratulations on you and uh, not just for making your business grow and being successful with it, but keeping your relationship with your dad center core balanced, important. Um, and, uh, that, that's a, that's a real testimony to a lot of people out there. So thank you for doing that. I appreciate it, Tim. And, and I just want to say thank you so much for, for having me on the show. Uh, it was a blast. It was, it was a lot of fun. And, uh, I really hope that, uh, your listeners can get some value from anything that, uh, either of us had to say today. Yeah. Oh no, there's, there's tons here. There's tons here. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. 
Hey everybody, thanks again for tuning into this episode and listening to the conversation I had between Josh and myself. And uh, if you found any value in this, uh, I hope that you pass it on to others. I hope it, uh, it helps you in what you're doing, not only in education, but also in business. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the podcast. That would be awesome. We'd love to have you stick around. And if you have subscribed to the podcast, would you mind giving us a rating and a review? That would help us beat the algorithm. That would help us get this podcast out more into the open so more people can find it and glean from it. We really appreciate you listening. We really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and consume what's going on here. So we want to say thank you and want to let you know that next episode, next week, we're having the Dr. Tannis Morgan on the show. She's going to come and talk to us about her keynoting at OE Global, as well as talk about some of her research and findings around community of practices. It's going to be a great conversation. So take care, have a great week, be kind, be safe, take care of yourself, have some fun. We'll see you next week. Thanks very much. Take care.